We have, James says, these evil desires that are waging war within us. Uh, kind of like little kids. I'm not saying that little kids are evil, but they do have strong desires within them. My daughter, who is now an adult, was two months old when Kirsten left me alone with her for the first time. And here's, here's what a first-time dad thinks, two months old. I'm a little scared, but I'm like, I got this. I'm a good dad. So Kirsten leaves. This is pre-cell phone era. Kirsten leaves, and you know, at the time, I'm like, this is great. This is easy. I got, I'm doing the dad thing by myself. This is going to be awesome. And it was awesome, because what I didn't know at the time, because I was just two months into it, but we were raising the easiest kid in the world. Except an internal clock went off for her, and all of a sudden, she went from sweet little kid to terror. She was hungry. And two months old, the only way a kid can tell you that they've got this desire within them is just to scream. And I'm doing everything. Like, Dad of the Year Award is gone. I'm just like, when is your mom going to be home? I'm patting her, and I'm trying to change that. I don't know. Like, I'm ill-equipped to feed my daughter. She needs mom for that. And I was just thinking, you, there's no negotiating with terrorists or two-month-olds. There's just <laughs> a lot of praying going on. Kirsten, come home. Kirsten, come home. Lord, send her home. <laughs> and And my daughter's sweet. I'm not saying that little babies have evil desires in them, but at the moment, they're just screaming because they're demanding to get what they want. Totally appropriate for a two-month-old, not so appropriate for a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old to scream because you're not getting what you want. And I hope you understand that when James says what he says, who is he writing to? You may or may not know this. James was the brother of Jesus. They had the same mom, different dads. Jesus' dad was God. James' dad was Joseph. They, uh, they grew up in the same home. Joseph didn't actually believe in Jesus his whole life. He just like, but then again, who would worship their brother as God? That's, that's a hard sell, right? But something happened when Jesus rose from the dead. James went, oh, okay, you're telling the truth. And James did go on to worship his brother Jesus as Lord. He became an elder in the church in Jerusalem. And he wrote this book and he's writing to Christians. So when James says that you and I have evil desires within us, he's not talking about the people who don't know God. He's talking to people who do. And all of us have this going on. And what he's saying is, when you become a Christian, that doesn't change the fact that you're going to find yourself in relational messes. And it doesn't change the fact that you might find yourself in moral messes or financial difficulties. This is a part and parcel of our lives, and God spends the rest of our lives fixing it. And one of those things that we have to worry about is the fight that starts within us. First Peter, if you're in James, if you were just to go over like one page in your Bible, you could go to First Peter 2.11. Peter was an apostle of Jesus, and he said, My dear friends, I urge you to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Powerful picture. Within you, Peter is saying there are armies lined up. You can think of like the stormtroopers in Star Wars. Or you can think of the Roman troops fighting the Germans in Gladiator, whatever you want. Just picture that. Within you, these desires want to take you down. And then hopefully as a Christian, you're listening to the Holy Spirit of God, and there's another voice in you saying, don't give in to that desire. So they're at war with each other, and you're constantly being pulled towards things that you don't want to do, but you find yourself doing. There's things you really know you should be doing, and you don't do it, and you're like, what's up with that? In fact, if you were to go back to James, and we're in chapter 4, just go back to verse 16 and chapter, chapter 3, verse 16. James says, wherever there's jealousy and selfish ambition, if you see that in your relationships, here's where it's coming from. You're going to find disorder and evil of every kind. These things go hand in hand. 
And when he talks about this envy, it's the desire for something that you don't have, and you want it so badly, you don't even want the other person to have it. It's that bad. And then selfish ambition. I want my way, and I want it now, and I don't care what you want. I'm going to get my way, or it's the highway. And part of that, the fights that we have, this isn't pretty, and I know you didn't necessarily come to church. I'm not trying to punch you in the face with this, but a lot of times, how many things really do go back to, it's just me wanting what I can't have. It's me insisting I get my own way. It's, it's all... And now, there may be a time later when you realize that. Maybe it's in, have you ever been in an argument and about halfway through you realize you're the one that's wrong, but you got to go ahead and finish the argument out, right? And it's later you're embarrassed and maybe you admit that it was your fault or at least part of it. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is from Jesus' life. If you go over to Luke 12, you don't have to. I'll just tell you what happened. Luke says that Jesus was preaching to mega crowds. There's thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people listening to preach. And as he's preaching and he's teaching, he's just bringing it to the people. Everybody's like, yeah, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. And there's a guy in the crowd who's going, yes, preach it, Jesus. But what he's really thinking is, as soon as Jesus pauses, I am going to ask him a question. No clue that this is maybe a little bit embarrassing to ask a question in front of thousands of people, but he shouted it out, Luke 12, 13. Someone from the crowd called out, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. How inappropriate would it be to air your dirty laundry in front of thousands of people? Now, I got to respect his game here a little bit. He's been fighting with his brother to split the inheritance with him. He's appealing to the highest authority he can, right? I'm going to get Jesus. Jesus told you to split the inheritance with me. You can't go any higher. God told you to, so you got to do it. But this is just awkward. I don't even know the backstory, and I can just see this is, this is cringeworthy. I hope at some point later in his life he realized how bad this was. And even Jesus is like, who made me arbiter between your... Don't get me involved in this mess. But it, that's what a conflict will do to you when this internal desire, I want what he's got, it makes you do crazy things and it gets you into fights you don't need to be in. Here's another, <laughs> this is a great one. Again, probably embarrassing for the guys who are involved in this. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, it's Jesus with his closest disciples. And it says, after they arrived at Capernaum and they settled in the house, Jesus asked the disciples, hey, what were you guys discussing back on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. That's a little awkward. This, I love this. Be, I mean, I'm not, I don't love the embarrassment factor of it, but I just love it. Like, Jesus is kind of like my mom, always knows what was happening. Like, he got eyes in the back of his head. And, of course, they won't answer Jesus because they are arguing about who's the greatest. But this is what happens when you insist on having your way and when you give in to those internal battles. You go back to verse 2, and this does sound a little extreme. When you go back to James chapter 4, verse 2, he's saying, like, you, there's things you want, and you can't have it, so you scheme and you kill to get it. And I don't know, it sounds a little extreme to say you kill somebody to get something that you can't have, but that happens. Right? That's the basis of every Dateline NBC story and Lifetime movie, right? And I don't know if you've killed somebody literally or not, but figuratively, haven't we all done a little bit of a vertebral assassination on somebody, stabbed somebody in the back. You know, anytime you detect that it really is bugging you, that somebody has more than you have, whether it's somebody you're related to or somebody that you work with or somebody that you know, they've got a nicer house, nicer car, nicer life, the boss pays more attention to them, mom gave them more chocolate cake than me, mom's giving them more attention. That's what James is talking about. 
And if you notice that you have started to cut corners or compromise on your convictions, or if you just find yourself pushing yourself harder or pushing the people around you harder than they, they should so that you can excel, uh, when you see yourself putting your preferences ahead of what other people would want, you don't even think to ask, what do you think about this or what do you want? And sometimes defer to the other people around you. That's selfish ambition. And James says, because of those desires that battle within, we kill and we covet. And, and you might be saying still, Brian, it's a little extreme to say that I'm killing somebody because I'm just maybe sometimes a little bit me-oriented. But then you got to look at what John said. This is 1 John 3, 15. He said, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know murderers don't have eternal life within them. So if you've ever found yourself saying something unflattering about someone else to put yourself in a better light, if you ever found yourself um, lashing out against somebody verbally or even physically out of anger, this is all rooted right here. And I'm not trying to give you ideas. I'm just trying to tell you these things are really not doing you well. Are you willing to at least consider that maybe some of the problem in your life with your relationships could be you? So there's a longer flight, and the attendant was going down the aisles passing out the sodas, and it was a long enough flight that they actually got a meal. They got a sandwich. One of the guys took his sandwich from the flight attendant. He'd been grumpy the whole flight. And he took the sandwich out, and he peeled it open, and he didn't like what he saw, so he just, she was still there. He goes, this sandwich is bad. Just hand it back to her. She was quick. It must have been Southwest Airlines. She took the sandwich. She looked at it, and she said, bad sandwich, bad sandwich. Everybody, whole plane cracked up because this guy, even the guy laughed. I mean, what are you going to do? I want to just maybe put this in your mind that when you're going like, I just have so many fights and it's always other people's fault. James might be looking and going, bad sandwich. Are you willing to say it's, it's you? First of all, it's me. The source of conflict goes deeper than just, just people around me are kind of immature. In a very real sense, the reason we fight with other people is, is here. But then James doesn't even stop there. He goes on and he even adds to it. He says, you know, part of your problem too, it's not just that you're at war with yourself, you're at war with God. Uh, I would call this even a holy war, a war with God. Let's go on and read verse four through verse six. Strong language, James says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I'm gonna say it again. If you wanna be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit of God that's placed within us is filled with envy? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. Like the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. And uh, I know it's really, again, a strong language. First murderers, now adulterers. But James is saying you can't be friends with God and friends with the world at the same time. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes verses like this confuse me. Because I thought God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that we're supposed to love the world. Now, two different things. When we're talking about the world, God definitely loves the people of the world. He loves every single person who has a heartbeat. And if you look somebody in the eyes, that person matters to God and he loves them. He loves the world, the people of the world. What God does not love is the way the world works. And that's a hot mess. And you and I both know it. On our best days, the world doesn't do things very well. We take advantage of each other. We hurt each other. We exploit each other. We do all kinds of things we shouldn't. It's the system of the world that's broken. And James says, if you find yourself just getting along really well with the people around you, and you find that you just have no conflict at all with, between your beliefs and everybody else who's not a Christian, you're part of the world system. You're part of the problem. And that's adultery. It's spiritual adultery because God says, you have to love me first. 
And that's part of the, the relational problem is that when you're not right with God, you're not going to be right with the other people around you. You can't have one and not the other. That's why we say here at Connection, our purpose is to connect people to God and then each other through Jesus. We've got to fix this first. Once that is fixed, then we have the basis for the family that we're sitting in and a part of right now. And in my self-centered pride, though, as long as I insist that my way is the best way, I'm putting myself not just at odds with you, but with God. And the warning James gave here was really strong. This is worth memorizing. It's so easy. It says that God does what to the proud? God opposes the proud. It's a really strong word. Do you want God opposing you? Like you're lining up on the football line and God is lining up on the other side of you. I don't want God opposing me. And you don't either. So back in January, a young woman named Pollyanna Viana uh, called her an Uber, and she stepped outside her apartment, and on the sidewalk waiting for the Uber, a young man walked up to her and said, I've got a gun, you give me your money, and you give me your phone. And she said, I'll do one better, how about I give you a holy beatdown? Which she did. Dude picked an MMA fighter to, to mug. So she, she said, I punched him twice, I did a roundhouse kick and knocked him down, got him in a rear naked choke, and then I sat him down on the curb next to me and I said, now I'm going to take my phone that you wanted to steal. I'm going to call the police and we're going to sit here together and wait for them. Is that okay? And he said, yes, ma'am, it is. <laughs> I'm not going to show you. They, in the news story, they also had a picture of him in his mugshot. He was messed up. And he was just hoping the police got there before she got mad again. I don't want her opposing me. And none of us want God opposing us because we're so proud that we can't admit that we're wrong. We can't admit that maybe there's another way that we should be doing things. Do you want God opposing you? Well, what do we do about this? Let's get onto the solution side because I got like four minutes to wrap this up. You with me? Let's take your worship folder. Let's write these down. Because just as much as James wants to convict us that our relationships could be better, he gives us a pathway out. What are the steps out of conflict? Let's go ahead and verse 7 through verse 10. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts because your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. Let there be gloom instead of joy. Here's what you need to do. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up in honor. First thing here, submit to God. It's the foundation of every good thing that will ever happen in your life is when you submit your way to God. God will never take control of your life, but you can take your hands off at 10 and 2 of the steering wheel of your life and submit to him. It's a military term. Submit yourself. Put yourself in the proper rank and authority. There's God, and I'm not God, so I'm going to put myself under his authority, and I will submit to him, and I will take direction from him. I will listen to Jesus and let him tell me how to live my life, and if God puts it in my conscience that I'm wrong, I will go to somebody and apologize. And you do this, and James says, verse 10, you, you know when you humble yourself, God will lift you up, and you would much rather have God lifting you up than opposing you. But that's not the only thing you need to worry about. There's also all of us face an enemy that is very real and hates you very much. Verse 7, Jesus, Jesus, or I'm sorry, James warns us, you need to watch out for Satan. You need to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan is the enemy that wants to take you out. He can't take God out, so he goes after those who are created in the image of God. And this is also a military term. Not only do we submit to God and put ourselves under his authority, we fight against what's... So Satan puts it in your mind. That person never really liked you. I mean, you're justified in doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying because they're, they're just a jerk. 
And you don't listen to that. You fight against that. How do you resist Satan? Two things, prayer and self-control. If you're not praying, you're not ready to go up against Satan. And Satan wants to go after you. And it may not be in the ways you think. Satan loves chaos. He loves discord. He loves arguments. He will stoke the fires. He will make you think of things about the other person that you never thought of on your own. And as a friend of mine once said, Satan will make you smart in ways you never need to be smart. Don't listen to him. You've got to wise up and realize once you see what he's doing, it's just like, he's just a snot-nosed kid. I'm not going to listen to that. Warren, we're, uh, Rick Warren says, if you, uh, you get up in the morning and you don't run into the devil head on, it means you're already going in the same direction. And that ought to scare you. So what's the third thing we need to think about is submit to God, resist the devil. And then James says, come near to God. That's all that language about washing your hands and, and sorrowing. That's all repentance language. It's coming to terms with what maybe the impact you've had on your relationships has been. And to say, up to this point, I haven't been doing a really good job. I thought I was, but it's, maybe it's more my fault than I realized. God, I'm sorry. Friend, I'm sorry. Can we do better from here? We're going to wash our hands and move forward. What would happen if today you just very simply said, I want God's help making my relationships better than they've been? And I can't maybe necessarily go back and fix the things that have been done. I can't take back the things that have been said. But from today forward, it could be so much better. And we'll tell you this too. God doesn't ask you to do something that he's already not, number one, willing to do, but hasn't already done. Randy, during our communion time, read that great verse out of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, how we have peace with God. Right after that, the man who wrote those words, Paul, goes on to say, not only do we have peace with God, but God went first. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, you might die for a really good friend, you might die for a really good person, but God looked at us while we were still a hot mess, completely alienated from him, sinning all the time, hurting ourselves and disregarding him, and God says, I'm still willing to save you. And I want to tell you that. That's why we gather at Connection and celebrate communion and, and worship together and why I'm so excited to tell you about Jesus because, man, he can fix things that nobody else could. You can go to a counselor's for a thousand years and I recommend it if, if that's something that would be helpful to you and I can put you in touch with some great counselors. In the end of it all, we need Jesus. And if, if you're not connected to God through Jesus, none of the other stuff's really going to matter. And if you would like to think about that, if there's some questions you've got in that regard, feel free to write that on your Connect card or give me a call this week. Or if you want to stick around, we'll pray for your relationships. We'll help you find a relationship with God if you need that. That's what we exist for.